when we're talking about most of scripture, we think of the richness of scripture where you can read a verse 10 times and the 11th time you see something fresh and and new that that we understand that that there's layers to its meaning and message until we get to Genesis 1 and because of all of the anxieties over these apparent conflicts that discussion often collapses into you know what is the singular monochromatic understanding that must be defended against all others if you're going to get this right and we really lost this this sense of the richness of scripture and so there was a desire to recapture that by going in kind of setting aside those scientific uh, conflicts and discussions and looking at it from you know the, the 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 perspective of the people that it was originally written to and the literary beauty of that text and to recapture some of that richness Hey, welcome to the Expositors Collective Podcast, episode 223. I'm your host, Mike Neglia, and this episode is kind of unlike many of the previous shows that we've put out. I'm interviewing two different authors, Dr. Greg Davidson and Dr. Kenneth Turner. And while we do have uh, specific content in this episode about preaching and teaching, This is largely about biblical interpretation. Uh, We talk about preaching the manifold beauty of Genesis 1, uh, looking at a familiar passage and a somewhat uh, a battleground passage that a lot of people from different traditions have very strong opinions as to what Genesis 1 means and what we should be saying about it. Uh, In this conversation, Greg and Ken kind of open up the windows and allow several other perspectives in to help us understand this passage in uh, biblically faithful categories. So they've written a a book about it, which is published by Kriegel Academic, which is uh, doing very well. And you're invited to listen in to me speak with Greg and Ken about different ways to faithfully understand and then some of the ways that we can apply that in our preaching and teaching with Genesis chapter one, and then also with other contentious passages in Holy Scripture. Before the episode starts, of course, uh, let me say that our next in-person training event is taking place October 14th and 15th in Boise, Idaho. Uh, Be sure to keep an eye out on our website, expositorscollective.com and social media. That's going to point you towards places where you can register and save your spot for two days of incredibly practical, hands-on workshops and coaching to help you grow in your personal study and public proclamation of God's word. All right, I'm going to get out of the way. And then here's myself, Dr. Greg Davidson, and Dr. Kenneth Turner speaking about the beauty in Genesis chapter 1. Hey, welcome to the Expositors Collective Podcast. Uh, There are two guests uh, this week, uh, Dr. Greg Davidson and Dr. Kenneth Turner. And so uh, I'm excited to be talking with you guys about the manifold beauty of God's Word. Um, You guys have published a a book that we'll be referencing uh, later on, The Manifold Beauty of Genesis 1. Uh, But 
kind of as a way to, to get introduced to you, uh, I'd love to hear about your first sermon you ever preached. Yeah, so I uh, I was converted when I was 18 in a small little dirt parking lot uh, Baptist church that was a Reformed Baptist tradition. And so I was immediately kind of enamored by uh, my pastor and theology as I was learning the basics of the gospel. So, but one of the good things that church did is they gave me opportunities to speak to youth group, to, um, to even read from the scripture, uh, I even tried to join the choir, but I had no voice. But early on, I, I remember even the, that first Christmas of my freshman year of college, I came back home and there was a series of us guys who were given slots to preach. And here was my chance. And don't have a lot of details in mind. I just remember looking back, being very scared. You know, I had been taught this, the kind of a, the, the preaching of God's word is this holy moment and wanting to be prepared and doing all the study and, and preparation. But I remember looking back, just thinking, I am so into myself. I'm so worried about how I, I'm coming across wanting to be accurate, but also effective. Um, yeah, it was a scary moment. And uh, while I was feeling called to ministry at that time, some of those moments, if I didn't have the encouragement of my church, I think I would have um, given up, <laughs> gone and taught high school or something like that. Yeah. yeah. Uh, well, we're, we're thankful for that. Uh, Dr. Davidson? Yes. Yeah, so, of course, Ken is the, the Old Testament you know, Hebrew scholar guy that people expect. Of course, you, you fill the pulpit at least from time to time. And would not necessarily expect that from the geology professor, uh, but I actually grew up in an extended family family where both my grandfathers were preachers. Uh, my father was a biology professor. Um, you might have thought that there'd be some clashes there. There weren't. There was this synergy where there was a, a wonderful appreciation for the truth of God's word and its inspiration, as well as a, an appreciation for the study of nature, and and actually. When I was in late high school, I was actually thinking I would get a degree in an undergraduate degree in science, but then go into seminary. So my first sermon was kind of like Ken's. It was a short one that was in high school um, that was, of course, when you're that age, it's always about, yeah, I, I want to impress people more so than, you know, I want to be a, a good good steward of God's word. Uh, and, and we all grow and repent from that self-centeredness, hopefully. Um, so that, that was a very positive experience. I ended up feeling more later in college called to stay within the sciences uh, and to be able to, to minister in various ways there. And it's been interesting that it has come around full circle that I've been able to, to engage in theology and periodically fill pulpits. So my very first full sermon was when I was in grad school. and. It was on a passage in, in Revelation, and the very next Sunday, the head pastor got up and said, I don't really agree with what Davidson said. I'm like, <laughs> well, thanks for <laughs> that vote of confidence. Okay. Well, that's 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 fun. That's fun. Uh, well, yeah, Revelation is a, it's a tricky book to understand. The Bible kind of begins and ends on some... some uh, I don't want to say confusing, but complicated or nuanced, nuanced books that ought to be understood according to their genres and, and these, these types of things. Hey, on that note, 
would you guys like to tell us about our your la- your latest book, your recent book, uh, your first book together? Is that right? The yes. Manifold Beauty of Genesis One, a multi-layered approach. Yeah, so I guess I'll I'll kick it off mainly because the so it was a an idea that I had had that I very quickly realized in order to to really make it effective was going to require teaming up with somebody that was uh, more knowledgeable about the original language and the original culture and. I liked Ken's writing. We had a long history together, and he very graciously agreed to to, to team up with with me to do this joint project. And the the basic premises of it is that when we're talking about most of Scripture, we think of the richness of Scripture, where you can read a verse ten times, and the eleventh time you see something fresh mm-hmm. and and new that that we understand that that there's layers to its meaning and message. Until we get to Genesis 1, and because of all of the anxieties over these apparent conflicts, that discussion often collapses into, you know, what is the singular monochromatic understanding that must be defended against all others if you're going to get this right? And we've really lost this, this sense of the richness of Scripture. And so there was a desire to recapture that by going in, kind of setting aside those scientific uh, conflicts and discussions and looking at it from you know the, the 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 perspective of the people that it was originally written to, and the literary beauty of that text, and to recapture some of that richness. So I'll, I'll let Ken add to that. Yeah, for me, uh, I approach these issues um, from my church context and my teaching context. I, I I'm in the uh, pretty conservative part of evangelical Christianity. And so I'm coming from that context, um, dealing with issues that my students are addressing or people in my church. Um, and one of the things, a couple of things I think that where this kind of hits for me is similar to Greg, it's it, ironically in a, in a debate that is trying to defend the Bible, I often think the Bible is being sidelined or there's just a very simple, flat way of but the questions we're asking about the Bible are a set of questions that don't get into the richness of the Bible. So I felt like the Bible, especially coming from somebody who's immersed in ancient nursery literature and, and, and Hebrew culture and language, thinking there's a lot here in the Bible. Forget the science discussion. The Bible's being kind of sidelined. And then secondly, you know, as I'm trying to think of how do we promote unity and try to draw those lines of division, uh, I feel like there's times we need to, I often tell my students, we need to separate what's what I call the biblical theological question. That is, what is the truth? What is God's word saying? What is the Christian tradition? Versus what I call the pastoral question is, we know that good and godly people are going to disagree. So how do we decide what to do? Like in some ways, that might be the more important question, but the trickier question. How do we decide when to draw those lines of fellowship or disfellowship? And how do, we, how do we talk about something? How do we talk about God and the scriptures and these big ideas that we do agree on, even if we disagree on these other issues? How do you decide between what's primary issue and secondary? So that pastoral question has really driven a lot of my thinking and writing um, because I see it. I see it in front of me and my students. I see it in the people I go to church with. And so this becomes kind of an example 
of how to wrestle through that. And part of that, part of the strategy is to, hey, why not sideline to a degree the science and historical questions? Not to say they're unimportant, but they are secondary to the literary and theological issues. And why don't we why don't we begin to unfold the richness of God's word? And maybe, just maybe, if we agree on that, then we can have a cup of coffee and discuss the other issues. Hmm. Hmm. Yeah, if it comes down to a, a very clear yes or no question, do you take this literally or not? Um, and then that that is such a simple way of looking at such a complex issue. And um, I'm, I'm currently in a seminary cohort with uh, Dr. Gary Bashir's and he talks about this issue and he says that it's so frustrating that he says one side says, well, we're the side that takes the Bible seriously. And, and he's like, listen, <laughs> it's complex. It's complicated. There's a whole lot of things in play. And um, one, one side is saying that we're the ones who are taking it seriously. And I think even through interacting with, with your book and looking at these kind of seven layers that you're talking about, um, uh, you, you have both taken Genesis 1 very, very seriously. And it was uh, good for my heart and good for my brain to be thinking through these. Yeah, well, and, and just in case any of your listeners are, are, are wondering, uh, we, we both, Ken and I, have approached the book and approached scripture with the understanding that it is the word of God, that it is true. Uh, and what we're called to do is to properly understand that truth. Sure. So when we're talking about the, 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 the richness and layers and you know, listeners may be thinking, okay, that, that that sounds interesting. What exactly does that mean? Yeah. Uh, you know, and are, are they inventing things? Am I going to read stuff that I've, that nobody's ever thought of before? Uh, nothing in the book is completely new to us. Right? We we are taking what we did was we we took the work of many biblically conservative scholars that were all affirming the truth and word of God that. In uh, you know, in the various conversations, you know they're they're defending a particular view and trying to argue why it's the best view or the proper view against the others. And one of the things that we realize as we are studying these is that the the things that differentiate them, that make them incompatible with each other, are often just minor things. That if you set those minor things aside you realize these aren't competing views. These are complementary views. Right. That you can right. have multiple messages coming out of scripture that are kind of like tiles, that they're they're actually uh, complementary and building a larger, richer, beautiful message that's not just monochromatic. Yeah, yeah. These, these seven layers, I mean, I'll read them. Um, the, you know, looking at Genesis 1 as song, analogy, polemic, covenant, temple, calendar, and land. Um, seeing, seeing these things, and, and even you're saying, it's not like this is a, a multiple choice test and you want the, the reader to choose the right one, uh, but essentially it's like all of these are ways to understand um, this opening page of, of the Bible. And when I was reading it, um, I... Um, it's like this kind of feels like, or this reminds me of like biblical theology. It's essentially a lot of times it's like you kind of, you catch something in the first bit of the Bible and then show how it connects with, with all the rest of it. And I, I, I enjoyed, I enjoyed that as a, you know, biblical theology nerd. I was like, Hey, this sounds familiar. <laughs> 
yeah, when you when you see like the title that says the manifold beauty of Genesis one, and and you may think that well, the whole context is just within that chapter. But if you go to the end of the book and you look at the biblical references, there's pages and pages and pages of references to the larger Bible. Yeah. Yeah. So you start there and then draw all these connections with the rest. Well, here's my question for you. Um, maybe moving beyond Genesis 1, as you just have proven that you're ready and willing to do so. Um, like, are you pre- suggesting that preachers should include like multi-layered interpretation with like all passages that they come to? And I'll maybe defer towards uh, Dr. Turner on this one. Yes. <laughs> um, I'm a pretty fuddy-duddy on authorial intent. So I, okay. I, I at least want to start with, uh, and I mean, even the human author, like, I don't want to go beyond at least my, my first step is to figure out what the, the, the author authors are trying to do. And so I want something in the text to suggest, um, whatever direction I go, I'm not into making stuff up, reading stuff into the text. Yes. I believe there's a divine author and we can talk about other layers and, and how the new Testament uses this, but I'm, I pretty much start in a pretty conservative way. Okay. And, and, but I need to discern that. I need to find those connections. So uh, starting with Genesis 1, one of the, the great things of what we're trying to do, and even what you just mentioned with biblical theology, is Genesis 1 is not an isolated text. It is part of a, it's part of the book of Genesis, which is part of a book we call the Pentateuch or the Torah, right? Which, you know, traditionally has been tied to, to Moses. And that all has been integrated into a much larger history that ends in Second Kings, and then that's part of the Old Testament, which is part of the Bible. And so, it, going through the work, it looks like there are clues in the text to say that we need to read this as a whole, and those reflections on the text suggest different angles. Um, and so, I just to answer the question at first blush, I want a clue in the text to tell me to do that, and. Oh, no, I wouldn't just say every text is going to have, you know, seven layers to it. But there are, you can imagine a doctrine like creation and its unfolding doctrines like work and liturgy and time and, and the things we discuss. Those are the types of things in biblical theology that you suspect to have kind of multiple layers. Or you think about um, the picture of the, of the Messiah, even in the book of Isaiah. It's one of the examples we use. You just take the book of Isaiah and ask, well, how does Isaiah describe the Messiah? You're going to have three, four, five different pictures that might even look like, I don't know how these fit, and yet they do. I mean, just think about suffering servant songs. As you go from chapter to chapter, you get a totally different image. And so I want something grounded in the text to tell me to think about different layers, and then I want to go explore that. Yeah, I remember the first time someone kind of highlighted to me or showed me how Psalm 1 um, is intentionally introducing the whole Psalter. And and there's themes in Psalm 1 that have been included intentionally because the rest of the book spins out or expands on those. So why wouldn't Genesis 1 also intentionally include sections that we're going to see connected throughout the rest of the Bible. And Psalm 2 does the same thing as another introduction. I just was teaching on this this morning. Oh, were you? Oh. (laughs) Yeah, I was dealing with Psalms in my intro to Old Testament classes. Both Psalm 1 and Psalm 2 are considered introductory Psalms. Well, Psalm 1 is a wisdom text about the righteous versus the wicked. 
So very things like I'm, I'm now called to be a righteous or a wicked person. And that kind of filters how to interpret all the Psalms. But then Psalm 2 is this kind of messianic Psalm where God is setting himself up against the kings of the earth. I don't find myself in that Psalm until the very end when it says, you know, blessed are those who take refuge in him. And so I'm an observer, but both of those are introductions, but they come from very different angles and then they become different types of filters about looking at, you know, the other 148 Psalms. And some are going to be very practical oriented wisdom life. And some are going to be kind of these messianic things for me to observe and wonder. Oh, I'm happy to see you, you light up and, um, (laughs) (laughs) and uh, yeah, geek out about opening chapters of, of, of books, uh, not just the one that we're talking about right now. Um, So do you think that there are maybe building on that, like certain genres or kinds of, of scriptures, like that lend itself toward this kind of approach, like the Psalms perhaps are, are there others? Cause you, you said that authorial intent is, is really important. Do you think there's other authors that write in such a way that lends itself towards looking at it from these different chunks or layers? Man, I don't even, um, I, haven't, I mean, I mean, poetry would certainly lend itself in some ways. And there's a, there's a poetic feel to certain narrative passages like Genesis one, even if it's not strict poetry, it's poetic. If that distinction makes sense. Um, I mean, all the major genres, you know, anything involved in prophecy at some level, and in the Old Testament, the history is considered poet, I mean, prophecy, but Hebrews call, what we call historic books, they call the former prophets. So I think, I think anything that has a prophetic feel to it, um, especially within a, a meta narrative that, you know, climaxes in Jesus as the Messiah, is, is likely to have multiple layers. But I'd have to think more about the question in terms of, specific genres. I, I just think there's a prophetic feel to most of the Old Testament, though, including Genesis. Well, and I'll add to that, that, you know, what one of the things Ken said earlier is, you know, does the Bible itself prompt a, 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 a you know, more than one layer that you might be looking for? And, you know, in Western 21st century culture, we kind of get caught up in thinking of the historical documents or history in a particular way that's unique to our culture. That's, you know, it's it's just a journalistic description that's recounting history. That's what it is. And so we we wouldn't, you know, we're not prone to think of uh, you know, a, a historical account in the Bible as having layers to it. And yet, you know, thinking of of, you know, does the Bible prompt getting beyond that, you know, we You've got a human author, you've got a divine inspirer of that, that's got something in mind, right? That the human author doesn't necessarily even know at the time. And you look at, uh, and we have this described in our introduction to the book, that when you're looking at the children of Sarah and Hagar, that it looks like just a pretty straightforward rendering of a historical account. Yeah. And, you know, if anybody suggested that that was, you know, an analogy you know, the hackles kind of go up and it's like, no, this is history. And it's like, well, well, wait, who, who was it that suggested it was analogy? That would be the apostle Paul. Uh, so all of a sudden, you know, we're, we're like, oh, um, okay. That doesn't mean that it wasn't an actual historical event that was taking place that's being yeah. accounted for. Yeah. But 
there may actually then be these additional layers that include things like analogy that is important for us to, to get our arms around. Yeah, I, I appreciate that. Yeah, because, yeah, there was family drama and conflict and there was, you know, hey, you know, yet it's it connects with a bigger, broader story. And that's a fascinating and mind-melting thing to, to think about that, yeah, God orchestrated events or or the ways that events are recorded in such a way that it unlocks and expands into something that connects with his hope and plan for the future of the world. It's, it's, it's huge. It's huge. Um, do you think that there's like, okay. Now I, I just, um, I was talking to somebody earlier, um, in the week about, um, uh, an author by the name of A.W. Pink. Maybe you've heard of him. Um, yep. now he's like a you know, great kind of devotional writer, I think Presbyterian or something or other. Um, but, um, he, he, he kind of like gets a passage and then just like goes into it deeper and deeper and deeper and deeper and deeper. And then I think there comes a point where I'm like, Hey bro, this is too deep. <laughs> or I think, I think you've, you've lost what any author ever intended and you're pulling out nice truths that are in theory from the text. But then it's like, it's actually, I think it's not from the text anymore. It's just like, it's almost like word association at some point. So I think it always kind of starts really great. And then as it goes into, let's say, I don't know, the eighth or ninth layer, um, it gets into kind of speculative or just, yeah. I I guess I'm bringing this up to say like, did you guys have kind of safeguards or thoughts about like, you know, we're going to go seven layers deep and no, and no deeper (laughs) or um, what, at what point could you identify when it goes beyond authorial intent, as it's kind of a so, uh, so I'm going to say something quick there, and then let Ken give a, a, a broader answer. But that that I was Tony, you mentioned that because I was just thinking about the Music Man uh, this morning, and you know one of the most famous songs in that is you know the the, the main character is is trying to get the town to spend money on a band, and he's concerned about. He gets them worried about the kids playing pool. And he's like, you know, that's that's a trouble with a capital T and that rhymes with P and that stands for pool. Right. So you've got these just sort of word associations and rhymes and leaping from one thing to a completely disconnected thing that you can't really tie back to the original. And we did not want to do that. So I'm going to let Ken comment more on that then. Yeah. It's funny you mentioned A.W. Pink. I used one of his examples in, in a how not to interpret the Bible. <laughs> it came out of Egypt and um, the manna starts falling and it's described as white and A.W. Pink will wax eloquent for pages on, well, white is the color of purity and red is the symbol of the word of God. So this is about the purity of God's word, a doctrine I believe in. Yeah. Yeah. I, Off, oftentimes he, he yeah, lands. He, and, oh yeah. Well, that's true, I guess. But it's like, yeah, it's but, like when Google maps takes you somewhere, but in like the weirdest right. way possible, like, uh, I got where I wanted to go, but this but, is weird. Yeah, it's, it's, it's good doctrine, but you yeah. know, I joke with my students. There's lots of reasons Moses may have called it white <laughs> before thinking about the purity of God's word. Maybe it was a brown ground, or maybe using adjectives adds life to a story. Um, so, yeah, it's a good question. It's a helpful question. And again, without going into too much detail, I want clues in the text by that author or by later authors that make those connections. To, to go beyond. And again, I do think with a text like Genesis 1, if you take it as part of the Pentateuch, so I don't envision Genesis 1 being a floating text 
written to Adam, right? Let's take the most traditional position that Moses is the author. His audience is hundreds of years, if not thousands of years removed from the people in the story, right? And that matters. And so therefore, this text becomes connected to a much larger narrative um, called we call the Pentateuch, the foundation. And there are textual links and theological links, specific vocabulary, specific reflections that say you must read this together. Um, another just kind of practical thing for what we did is, as Greg mentioned, we didn't dream up any of this. We are dealing with um, scholarly Old Testament evangelical inerrantist um, scholars who have tested the um, you know the the field they published, and so they've done some peer review process. So these are these are positions that are established. So it doesn't mean they're all right, but it does mean they're not probably crazy and off the wall. Some of these go way. In fact, all of them have some. Uh, connection historically to Jewish and Christian scholars from you know centuries and millennia ago. Some of them have been formulated a bit more recent, but they still they're not kind of made up. So these are positions that have these are readings that have stood the test of time. So that's at least a practical way to make sure at least they're not making something up out of yeah. whole. And yeah, yet yeah. the one quick thing I would add to that is that with some um, increasing knowledge of the cultures of that time, of the surrounding nations. Good point. That there's also the, po- the potential to take these ideas and things that are we find in Scripture and see how, how were they interconnecting and related to the cultures around them. And, in, you know, all of a sudden, some things start to, like, make so much sense that's like, oh, well, yeah, n- no kidding. You're going to make have these kind of polemic statements against these, uh, um, you know, the polytheism of the surrounding nations and much of what, uh, you know, the capricious nature of those gods. You know, when I'm thinking specifically about the early chapters of Genesis, when you think about theology proper, what is it saying about God? You have different angles on, on who God is, right? Genesis 1 kind of gives you the sense of this transcendent being who's, right, everything's about separation and distinction. The, cre- the creator is different than his creation, and then human beings are elevated among the rest. Then you hop into Genesis 2, and God is walking through the garden side by side, right? The woman's coming out of the side of Adam. The, the animals are there. And so, so just real simple, one chapter kind of focuses on God's transcendence and one on God's imminence, his presence. And so if the character of God has multiple kind of angles, then I suspect some of these major themes also would have that. Oh yeah. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. I personally, I was going to say like my favorite chapter was the polemic um, layer. I was like that, that is so fascinating um, to see Genesis one as kind of a, a counter narrative or a, or a, yeah, I, I, I really appreciated that. And the other ones too. I, I like a good, yeah. Seven layer burrito, <laughs> um, but that was my favorite <laughs> ingredients of it. Well, and, um, and it's interesting you, you say that because one of our hopes for this book is that it would help to move the conversation away from defenses of a monochromatic understanding of scripture to conversations about what are your favorite layers. So the fact that you like mentioned, 
your your favorite layer yeah is 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 actually that's music to our ears <laughs> oh good yeah Be, beyond just any author having someone say oh yeah i like that chapter but i think what you're saying is to to hear somebody you know from from a you know very conservative network um uh able to see hey this is just a really valuable contribution to this conversation um here's 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 a question um i didn't send it to you guys in advance but like so here like super practical. We're a podcast for preachers about preaching. Like how, how should someone preach this? Um, in, in my network, um, you know, we tend to, you know, preach chapter by chapter through books. You know, that's, that's what we do. Uh, we're not the only ones who do it, but that's kind of what, what we're all about at Calvary Chapel. Um, so someone's teaching the book of Genesis and allocating perhaps a chapter a week. They're going to do a year in Genesis. What could someone say in one sermon uh, about about these types of things, what is the 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 limit to one sermon to get into any of these multiple layers? Yeah, since you limit it to like one chapter, because part of me wants to say do a twelve week study in Genesis one. And okay, yes, yeah. Or I think, in a more practical level, um, yeah, I, I often think if I was pastoring today, I've been a pastor in the past, but okay. you know, something like this might be something. Hey, we're going to preach this. But we're going to do this Bible study on the side, right? You can you can attach a, a potential Bible study on the side um, as you move on, so that you could you could take our book and deal with the discussion questions. But I think I would, I think part of the pastoral moment is to know our own context, right? Not just the Bible in its context. Mm-hmm. Given the fact that there has been um, a perceived war <laughs> between science and faith at times. Um, I think part of the moment is to tell the people, look, I know this is out there. You've got lots of questions and we can talk about that some other time, but almost set the stage is saying, but we're not going to deal with that. Right. Because what's missing is getting into the richness of the text and I don't have time to do it all. Um, and if you want resources, I can share with you, but I'm going to highlight some of the things that you may not have thought about. And you can walk through specific verses in the text to say, have you ever thought about this? And, you know, think about how this connects with this verse over here. So you could actually just kind of pull apart some examples, almost, especially a text like Genesis 1 that Christians tend to think they know, show them places that they probably missed, even though they've read it a hundred times. Mm-hmm. We thought about this. Did you ever, you know, I would, I would probably approach it from that direction. And you just have to pick and choose like, like any sermon uh, or say, Hey, I know there's different angles, but here. My, my favorite kind of approach is this thing called the polemic. And you, know, you can kind of, you just choose a path and go with it, I think. Hmm. Hmm. Well, and, and a, an important element of that is that typically the, the people in the church that they don't have a lot of background in original languages, in the ancient cultures, in the sciences. And so they're, they're looking for, to the pastor, not just to, tell them what's right, but even for permission to explore, right? That, that, that People don't realize the barrier that exists out there where people feel like even exploring some of these things is kind of edgy. It's kind of, is that even okay? And there would be tremendous benefit from their pastor sort of giving the blessing on explore these things further. and. When you're talking about something like Genesis and all these different viewpoints that are out there, it's it's typical for a pastor to get up there, and he may not may acknowledge 
that there are other viewpoints and that there's some validity to them. And he'll say, but you know, where, where I kind of fall is here. And then he gives the, 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 you know, the whole sermons on that point. And there's this implicit message that, you know, okay, you, you, you all out there in the pews could go in little different directions, but you really ought to, you really ought to go with, with the path that I'm laying out. And I think it'd be tremendously beneficial if a sermon were to take, to say, you know, just to illustrate the richness of this passage, we don't have time to go into seven layers, but we're going to highlight two. Or if somebody thinks they can fit it in, you know, three, yeah, where, where they're kind of given the, 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 you know, kind of the core elements of at least two different viewpoints and illustrating why they are complementary, and then encouraging people to like explore that further. And then they have resources like the book. Like your book published by Kriegel Academic, uh, available <laughs> available in the show, link in the show notes. Uh, yeah, yeah. Well, here's, this is reminding me of a conversation I had with uh, my buddy, Phil Walsh. Um, we were talking about uh, the Trinity and how oftentimes it's like the Trinity, you just gotta believe it, you know? And then here's how it works. And, and hey, I believe in the Trinity, you know? And I, I assume we all do, but like, we we only have learned the Trinity as what distinguishes us from the Jehovah's Witnesses. Um, and the Trinity is just something that's just like accurate. And and he and I have have, you know, in recent years just like, you know, been enjoying like actually worshipfully considering the Trinity. And 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 there's a lot of like great books that have come out recently just like about delighting in the Trinity or or these these various things, the deep things of God by Fred Sanders. And it's just like we were saying like, we just thought we had to believe it to not be heretics, but turns out this truth about God is awe-inspiring. And uh, I, I wonder if this is the next the next step to see that like, it's, you know, there's a certain genre or brand of understanding of Genesis 1 and you got to believe it. Um, but maybe this is like, oh, maybe Genesis 1 isn't just this demarcation between us and the libs or whatever, but like, this is an area of, of worship. And we can see this as, as awe inspiring and worship inducing. Yeah, that'd be great. My, my mentor used to say, um, if you go to Genesis one, just to fight the evolutionist, the devil has you right where he wants you. And his point was the text is a worship text. You know, by the end, we're supposed to be on our knees worshiping this God. And yet we've turned into a, a polemic against fellow Christians. I'd say the same thing about texts that mention election and predestination, but that's another podcast. That is another podcast. So we're wrapping this one up right now. What are you doing? What are you doing? <laughs> um, yeah. Uh, yeah. So if I could, uh, I mean, if you have a, a minute, actually, yeah, Dr. Turner, I heard you say on another interview, um, you you said that if if you had the time, you would have loved to included like, uh, a Christological layer, like we're all, yeah. we're all about that. We're big yeah. on Christ-centered preaching. Like, what what would you say? Why don't you? Could you give us a little preview of right. what that and, could have been? And even just to add your earlier question about preaching, one of the things we did in the book, um, Greg put this together at the end, where there's kind of an, uh, a conclusion chapter that very explicitly ties each of these layers to Jesus. And so we do try to. It's a halfway step towards that, and I would certainly want that in a sermon. So. Yeah, I mean, seven was too delicious to keep it. <laughs> Having an eighth layer would have been too much. And, um, 
And I just don't know if I would, would have been the right one. I'm more of a Christotelic person than Christocentric, if that okay. makes sense. I want to end with Jesus, but I'm kind of, I start in the ancient Near Eastern world. But we do offer that in our last layer on land. We do talk about these um, editorial editions in the Pentateuch that seem to be very motivated by Messiah type of thinking. And so there's this eschatological future orientedness that whatever God's original design for Israel is, is now being projected into the future through a new leader, a new prophet, a prophet like Moses. And so, yeah, I want to see Jesus wrapped up into, you know, I'm thinking of John 1 and uh, Colossians 1 and Colossians 3 and Hebrews 11, places in the New Testament that specifically tie Jesus as the creator. Um, And then you can think of passages that deal with him as the ultimate image of God and we're being conformed to the image of Christ. Um, And then passages that tie him to wisdom and wisdom is connected to creation. So there's, there's lots of actual reasons to make this connection. And so, yeah, I, I want to see Jesus as, as the God, as the creator, um, and as a representative of, of the true ideal human being. So I'd want to, in some ways, bring those together. But I'd also want to, this is where I'd feel more comfortable. I think eschatology begins in Genesis 1. I think the gospel begins in Genesis 1, not Genesis 3. I actually think God is on the move towards doing something even before human sin is introduced. And so if Jesus is the telos, if he's the end and he's the goal, then in some ways, Jesus is on, Jesus is in mind from the very beginning. Now, I don't know what it would been look like if sin had never entered the world, but I still think there, God was progressing towards something. And human sin derailed it to some extent. Um, but, but God didn't change course to some plan B. Uh, he had something in mind that was, he was going to include human beings in that process of coming to, to a certain fulfillment. And so it would be something along those lines. But again, I, it's so not my cup of tea that it would take a lot more time and thinking. I'd almost want to give it to a new Testament or theology buddy and say, Hey, here's my thoughts. You run with it. Cause you, I'm not as comfortable <laughs> exploring some of these directions. Yeah. Well, and and yeah, just the idea of as as Ken said, there was a a certain attraction to having seven layers. Uh, you know the because uh, of the burrito, right? The burrito, yeah. yes. <laughs> yeah, but we weren't. Uh, it, it, we talked a lot about you know, is there are there other layers that we really want to bring in? And in the end, we really felt like you know the the ones that made. The, the most sense to us that we were able to, to, to articulate were the seven that, that we came up with. Having said that, it's not an all or nothing preposition. In other words, if somebody reads it and they said, well, you know, they would have had me, um, but that last one, you know, I'm only buying six of them. So their premise doesn't work. I'm like, no, yeah. no, 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 no. If, if somebody read them and only three of the layers like really resonated and the others, you know, not so sure about, that's still a win because there's still a recognition that th- there's a richness to this text that is not just a single facet. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I, I, yeah, I, I agree. There's, there's things in there that I liked more than others, polemics, you know? Um, and so I think it's been, yeah, a, a valuable 
contribution to my own understanding. And hopefully it's something that has been not just thought provoking, but awe inspiring to those that, that, uh, that read it or consider it. And, you know, for the listeners of the expositors collective podcast, you know, like I always say, I, I hope that this episode and all that we do help you to grow in your personal study and public proclamation of God's word. Uh, thank you so much to Dr. Turner and Dr. Davidson. This has been, yeah, outside of my usual line of thinking, but it's been, it's done my heart good and hopefully it helps Bible teachers and preachers out there. Thanks for having us. Thanks. Well, thank you so much to Dr. Kenneth Turner and Dr. Greg Davidson again for that conversation. I really benefited from it and hope that you as a listener uh, certainly did as well. All right. Well, I do hope that you are subscribed to this podcast, uh, whether you watch it on YouTube, whether you listen on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or whatever. I hope that every Tuesday, this is automatically delivered to your inbox or to your device, because next Tuesday, we've got another fantastic episode from another highly educated and clear-spoken uh, author and speaker. You're going to hear from Dr. Amy or Ewing about apologetics, about persuasion, about the role that evangelism plays in our weekly Bible teaching. I'm going to leave you with a clip from that episode, but just to say that Dr. Amy or Ewing, she is one of the speakers at the upcoming Calvary Global Network. Pastors and Leaders International Conference, which is taking place at the end of June in Costa Mesa, California. So at the beginning of this episode, I invited you to join me in Boise, Idaho. And then now I'm also saying, if you just can't wait until October, then I want to say that you should also come to Costa Mesa, California uh, for June 26th to the 29th. It's a Sunday evening to a Wednesday evening. And we've got a great lineup of speakers that are coming and that are addressing us about gospel culture. Uh, Dr. Ray Ortland, uh, Amy Or Ewing, Tim Chaddock, Dominic Dunn. Uh, they're coming down and it's going to be an incredibly encouraging couple days together. And so I want you to know that that's coming up. And then also here is a clip from one of the guests, one of the speakers of that podcast, Dr. Amy or Ewing. All right. See you next Tuesday via podcast. Hopefully see you in person in June or in person in October. All right. Have a great week. I hope that this episode helps you to grow in your personal study and public proclamation of God's word. Yeah, and I would also encourage preachers listening to this um, to just bear in mind it's highly likely in the Western world that whenever you are preaching, there will be people who are not followers of Jesus. There might just be one or two, but it's highly, highly likely whether they're family members that have been dragged along and, you know, outwardly they might seem like a, you know, part of a Christian family, but there might be an internal struggle going on or someone's relative has come along. So just that, that, that sense that we're not just speaking in a rarefied bubble where everyone agrees already 
So to to include that element of persuasiveness, um, persuading people towards the scriptures, persuading people towards Christ, winning people, um, I think that's a that's a kind of mentality thing, isn't it? And in the states as well as you know, as America changes dramatically, you know, in my working life the last twenty five years, the U.S. scene has changed so much so that you know not everyone's a christian of course you know that um but but to to really um embrace that so deep within you as you're approaching god's people and and opening the word you're you're you have in mind those who don't know jesus including in an exposition of Leviticus or whatever it's it's just it is a reality that we want you know people to be drawn to Christ Mm -hmm.